for myself personally at Push, the projects that I've been most proud of and I've personally been most passionate about are the projects where we decide from the beginning that we're not going to make any money. In our uh, improvised virtual studio today, here is my guest, Mike Sunder, Managing uh, Strategy Director of Push, one of my favorite production studios whose crew successfully brings out these beautiful niche vibes out of the underground floor straight to the forefront of uh, the brand and content world. And it's my pleasure to have you on board this evening, Mike. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on board. Thank you for having me. So as far as we know, Push equally develops its two main directions, which are advertising on the one hand and uh, music video production on the other hand. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the key point for our today's discussion since it determines and in some way reflects, I think, the way Push exists today as a concept. So the choice of music artists to collaborate, if we're speaking of music video production, yeah. is a good way to see what's going on inside the collective creative mind, isn't it? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of somewhat unique in so much as Push before I came on board, which was January 2020, I co-founded the Tokyo office. There was already Push in Shanghai, which operated as a, ostensibly as a production house. So making TV commercials, music videos, basically very, um, you know, good quality sort of video creative. And I come from a ad agency background. So my background's more in strategy. So when you mix the two together, which is what's happened in Tokyo, you end up with this sort of hybrid agency slash production house where we'll we'll develop creative and we'll do you know brand strategy we'll work directly with brand clients but then we'll also get production jobs which means we'll do music videos we'll do documentaries um even you know sometimes we'll dabble in event production and activations but yeah it's kind of this interesting mix of a traditional sort of creative agency and then the agile ability to actually produce and execute in-house well, I guess this is a quite popular format nowadays to be like to comprise these two basic functions of advertising worlds just to to make to make sure that you the things that you produce in an in-house format find their reflection in your creative that you do on your own like it's uh, it's a uh, an ultimate in-house format which um, shows flexibility in these days I think. Yeah, I, I think it's it's good for for modern clients because you know the way the industry's evolved. There's you know like things move faster, right? We need to make higher cadence content for social media, and also budgets tend to be you know slightly tighter than they used yeah. to be in the old days of TV advertising. So it makes sense from a kind of client industry perspective, and it's good for company culture as well because you know our creatives get mm -hmm. all of their sort of creative juices flowing for music videos and. You know, they get to really sort of put their heart and soul into the sort of film craft that comes yeah. with some of those jobs. So it, it kind of balances out quite nicely. Well, apart from the strategy of just optimizing human resources and financial resources, uh, there's uh, the other side of this issue, I think, is, uh, this, which uh, is uh, way closer to creative uh, specificity of our work. And uh, speaking of 
comprising adjacent formats of creative work, like running a creative team and uh, a, an adjacent production team as well. In terms of the choice of your artists, which you collaborate, who you collaborate uh, in music video production, like you can guess instantly what's the pivot point of one's creativity when you checked out the artist who you filmed clips for. I mean, like if you if you film clips for Rosalia, like you did, yeah, and Empty Moons and so on and so on. How does it reflect your commercial side of production? I mean, like if you work for branded content and music videos simultaneously, could that be a an indicator for? anyone else who's coming to push as a client to make sure that you resonate correctly in terms of your like vibes or moods or preferences, uh, just in order to build a healthy communication? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think our music video is almost like a, a business card for our creative ability in many ways, because, you know, it shows the sort of commercial clients, what we can bring to the table in terms of uh, film craft, in terms of um, our, you know, the way that we cast talent and extras, the way that we choose locations. You know, I think for better and for worse, you know, commercial projects are shaped by the sort of client brief, whereas a music video is a, a kernel of an idea that is then brought to life sort of creatively by the director and by the production team and so on. So in that sense, I think it tends to show off both kind of overtly and also sort of less conspicuously our sort of creative sensibilities just in the way that we go about things. I think in general, corporate or commercial clients look at our music videos and they want to work with us. But what, what's interesting is that the opposite is not necessarily true, right? When we're working with, you know, music artists and like really talented music video directors, they often want a less corporate culture on set, right? Like they, you know, maybe they want to, the talent wants to, you know, drink some alcohol to loosen up or maybe, you know, like not every shot has to be regulated to the exact second. So it's funny, like, you know, we consider ourselves very much sort of from the kind of world of culture and creativity. And we also, we, we find ourselves almost having to deliberately like force some of that back into how we operate when we do music videos, because you kind of, you get a bit too rigid and regimented just from doing nonstop sort of brand and commercial work. Despite this, you still position yourself not just like a community of artists, like you could, like in the outside of branded world, you still have to position yourself more like, I say, a managed community of artists that bring working solutions to the branded content. So you try to find some sort of balance, a compromise. I, I don't know how to say that. Let's let's say a balance, a balance between your artistic view, your artistic vision, and one's expectations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think all creative work is a balancing act to a degree. I think absolutely. Yeah. The good thing about doing commercial work is that it really trains you in communication and setting expectations and really sort of managing. Yeah, just managing kind of expectations on both sides. And that that's, I think, something that can be really stressful on music videos because they're so sort of emotionally charged. The talent often has a very uh, strong 
um, vision for the project. The director on top of that also has their vision. Then, you know, the production team and the post-production team need to bring that to life. And if you haven't trained, I think, on commercial work, I think that can be a very stressful, kind of, yeah. Yeah, emotionally charged and stressful process. So I think I think it's yeah it's good for developing the kind of fundamentals. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But mostly, I would like to emphasize here on the issue of such thing like a constant time gap for some types of content that exists nowadays. Like for example, for music specifically, which determines its status between underground, vanguards, trendy, and casual. Like let's say that there are four, there are four states of contents, which is gen of media, which is generated nowadays, and in order to be heard and listened and accepted fully, typically it should overcome all these four stages. So basically, it's the gradation we're going to talk about today. So we rank the contents depending on something, and uh, in order to bring some things that are not just fully accepted by the society nowadays, which might seem too vanguard or too underground for the vast majority of people, of viewers, consumers, we, which we're talking about. So depending on what, that's the key. I think this is a key question of our today's discussion, because if you work with talents, you tend to cope with their, um, not just their artistic vision, but with some sort of desire to share something new. So it's basically about balancing between expectations and your desire to show something. So the gradation of these uh, states of content, what it typically depends on, how do we how do we determine if something is too underground to be used in branded content or too casual? How do we, how do we determine such things? Interesting, uh, interesting topic. I mean, there's a lot to discuss, right? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, this is my first time hearing this particular like quadrant, these four sort of, uh, I guess, identifiers. Um, but it makes sense, and it reminds me of, you know, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but Pierre Bourdieu, the sociologist, right? He wrote in distinction about how different classes, you know, different classes of society would listen and consume different types of music. And so you might have, you know, like, uh, I mean, this goes back to like many, many decades ago, but you might have the equivalent of sort of popular, you know, music and rock music appealing to the sort of the labor classes or the working class. And then as you move up into the middle upper classes, their tastes would change um, and it would sort of track via class. And then at the very top, you would have the the sort of uh, the elites, you know, the old money, the aristocrats, and they would be listening to a form of jazz or classical that just wouldn't ever overlap with any of the other demographics. And I, I always found that really fascinating in so much as it was this like bubble of taste that would just, you know, you could aspire to it, but it was almost, um, you know, uh, sort of isolated in this in this uh, upper bracket of class. So, yeah, I mean that's just context. But to your to your point, I mean, you know, you, you've seen the work that we do. We position ourselves on the underground, right? Like we we love to work with um, independent artists, and we often try and 
you know, weave them into our work through casting or asking them to do the music or in, in all sorts of aspects. And I think the sort of clients that we work with, um, you know, you might call them sort of culture marketing brands, you know, the sort of brands that take that approach. So, you know, the Nikes of this world, the Red Bulls of this world, the Beats by Dre's of this world, they tend to look for that, which makes us a very um, suitable partner creatively. Uh, but don't get me wrong, it, it's, you know, it isolates us from, let's say, 80% of the market that feel like it's too, it's not on brand, right? It's, it's a little bit too edgy for, you know, your average uh, FMCG, you know, deodorant or shampoo or, you know, potato chips, whatever it might be. Apparently, yeah, pretty, so pretty we're, much. You know, we're a small yeah. independent agency. We're, we're 10 people now, but it's still small. So like we, we have our niche and we're very happy and healthy within our niche. But if we were ever, and I don't want to expand to the complete mainstream, but if, if we were like a big, you know, a big agency like a McCann or an Ogilvy, then it, it's not a viable business model because you, you alienate the kind of the bigger clients that, you know, or not all of the bigger clients, but many of the bigger clients that you might want to work with. So yeah, it, it definitely, it, it works to uh, differentiate ourselves and to give us that sort of- I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure it does because as a, as a guy who also presents the some kind of boutique creative uh, industry part, I'm pretty sure that it does really work. And there is, there, there hides the, uh, most significant parts of this, let's say, niche beauty of the creative market, because it doesn't count as some kind of sacrifice. When you consciously say to yourself, like, okay, I'm ready to lose 92% of my potential income just in order to make sure that I love what I do and I do it not in a casual way. I'm pretty sure that that's quite valuable. Maybe these, maybe that's the most, that one of the most valuable things in terms of creative philosophy nowadays. And that's quite interesting that you, that's quite fascinating that you actually remembered the uh, social basis theory of culture, but you can have like two absolutely differently filmed movies, which translate the same message, but done absolutely in different ways. Because one may, may be filmed on a Sony A7 III camera and one might be made as an 8 or 16 millimeter thing, which has become quite fashionable nowadays. <laughs> but it still refers to some sort of left field culture. In one of our previous talks, we figured out that in order to be efficient in advertising, sound should tell a story. So in addition to... The point, uh, to example, I've mentioned before with the Sony A7 film and 16mm uh, film. Do you feel it's sufficient for the content that you make? Like imagine a, a melody being having been pre sound produced in, in different variations. Well, one uh, sounds like a classical piece of music and another sounds like an ambient hyper-pop sound produced piece of music, but they, they, they tell the same story, but at the same time, they sound absolutely different even though they illustrate the absolutely equal melody compared to the previous one. If we're talking about sharing something visionary from, let's say, uh, underground culture, maybe it's a bit more than just 
a story. Maybe it's just something more than just an, a narrative. I think sound is still incredibly important. Um, we make a lot of content for social media, you know, for Instagram especially. And, you know, the clients and ourselves as well, we often think, oh, well, you know, a lot of consumers or a lot of uh, viewers are just going to watch it on mute. So you, you have to tell the story visually first and foremost. And, you know, you, you might want to think about graphic supers and subtitles and things like that. But having said that, I think the value that we bring as a kind of creative studio with a, with a specific sort of style and perspective, a lot of that is communicated through the choice of music. And it's always something that is top of mind, you know, like if we have the, the bandwidth and the resources, we'll commission original music. You know, we have a lot of DJs and producers in our network of friends. So we'll often approach them for commercial work. And then for the more kind of arty stuff, like the documentaries we do for Nowless, for instance, music is a huge part. It's absolutely vital. We did a piece for Nowless a couple of years ago. We were profiling Liu Fan, the Korean artist. And it's one of my one of my favorite works by you, by the way. Yeah. I Thank you. Yeah. It, it was and you know, that's like quite a small project in terms of budget and timeline and so on. But the music really elevates it. My friend uh, Flora, Flora Yin Wong, who's a very talented musician in London. She created an original score using ambient field recordings from, I think, Naoshima, where she'd recorded them. And it was just, it, it, it's night and day, right? The piece with, you know, having that video with some original score like that versus not having it or versus doing it with stock music. You can't even, I can't even personally think about that video with stock music, right? So it, it's, yeah, it's huge. It's incredibly important to what we do. But I do think, to your point, maybe clients don't necessarily value it in terms of, you know, let's say effectiveness. Like, I don't think yeah. you're necessarily going to see a huge difference in performance if you're using a hyperpop soundtrack versus a classical soundtrack. Like you might get a little bit of... That's a quite exaggerated example, yeah. just, just in order to, for, you to, for you to deliver the point of my, uh, the point of my question. Yeah. That's not, not just necessarily the choice between a classical and hyperpop, of course. It's just an oversized example. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, of course, but it's a good one. It's a good example. Like I think I, I would love to see an A-B test for like a video that has two very different soundtracks, right? Two very different choices of background music because you A-B test everything else, right? You A-B test copy, you A-B test, you know, the logo at the front versus the logo at the end. You A-B test, you know, when the talent comes in, but you very rarely test different types of music. So I think it would be interesting. I, I think I might have some relevant experience in that. I've recently produced a synthesizer cover for a major company makes cybersecurity business decisions, and they asked for a cover for uh, Nutcracker by Peter Tchaikovsky. That's quite an unconventional task, yeah. And frankly speaking, I'm I'm not a big fan of covers, especially of classical music. But we thought it of like a challenge, maybe, and we suggested them to go modular. And we suggested to make a modular synthesizer-based cover, and it was a massive success. Like, it came from absolutely nowhere, and it played absolutely unexpectedly. And it, it was quite top of mind. Like, you see, you see an analog synthesizer laying on your, on, on your desk, and you, you think, well, why shouldn't I use it rather than just using keyboards or pianos rather than doing anything else? I would just 
put up some chords and select uh, select a necessary patch in order to translate the the same narrative but in a different form in a different shape that's what the question was initially about the question is more like a question of a ratio between the form and the content you can translate the um, same content through many different forms and the way you choose the form is exactly your choice of how far are you ready to go to seek for something underground, to seek for something vanguards, to share with those who would like to see their branded content produced by you. So it's it's far away from just being a specific sonic decision question, I believe. That's pretty fundamental for any kind of creative work. Yeah. Your, your example is really interesting because like, I think you're saying, right, like it's almost like an ideological decision. And like, if you're, if you're choosing to use a modular synth, that's so, in my opinion, in a good way, it's very anti-commercial. It's very anti-corporate. And the reason is not the sound, but it's because you have no control over it, right? It's really, it's like the opposite of what clients want, which is a very safe, secure, predictable outputs. Whereas a modular synth is random, it's exciting, it changes depending on like almost, you know, the humidity and the condition of the wires. So you don't really know exactly what you're going to get. It's a very like deliberate and interesting creative decision. Yeah, exactly. To, to, to go, go down that route. To sum up, could a creator, let's say, could his or her bravery or willingness to change the game be the driving force of the creative process yeah um <laughs> yeah i uh, i mean i can see it going both ways i mean you know from the perspective of the sort of agency or production house responsible for creating the project i don't want a completely vanguard sort of creative or like director trying to push their own agenda because it just makes things typically more sort of difficult than is often feasible or it's that it is it's possible to overcome on a commercial project. Whereas on a music video or on a documentary for nowness or on a passion project, then those are the people that I want to work with more than anything else, because that's where you get some sort of form of yeah. you know, you get an original spark that, you know. My going back to I think what something that you alluded to a few questions ago, my biggest problem, one of my biggest sort of issues with the industry, and this extends to music videos as well, is that everything, everything is referential. True. Everything is a reference. And it's because we we talk in we talk in mood boards, right? So it's like this is this is a still from, you know, a Tarkovsky movie. This is a still from a Kurosawa movie. This is a still from some underground, I don't know, like VHS that no one's ever seen, but it's still a reference. Yeah, exactly. Both visually and and in terms of the approach, right? You're you're and I'm guilty of this as well. I'm not saying that I don't do this, but I think the way that we work discourages that kind of unique spark of creativity where maybe you need to just go sit down at a modular synth and like just create something chaotic and random. I'd love to I'd love to see that approach being more common throughout the workflow. The most interesting question I have for today, so as a logical consequence of all the previous discussions, so aesthetic flair versus 
consumer psychology, is it actually a punji pit or an inspirational heaven? Because as, as a creative guy running an audio studio, I periodically face situations when something goes sideways and you sometimes you don't really know what to base your attitude on. Like somehow it's, it has some sort of advantages, like, wow, you... You can you can take the best out of both worlds and make a crazy blend out of everything you like. And on the other side, it's a it's actually a cognitive trap, might be for one who's thinking to thinking of it as a as a too easy maybe or thinking of it like an easy job to do. So is it more like a, like a trap, like a an endless opportunity source? Yeah, I uh, I mean, so personally for you, yeah. Personally, I think yeah, exactly. I think it's a subjective. Absolutely, there's no right answer for this one. Yeah. No, no, of course, and I mean, you know, I I come from a background as a strategist, right? And for me, the easiest way to sort of summarize and define the role of a strategist is that you you almost govern the brand through the voice of the consumer. You are the objective truth in so much as you represent the consumer. You know, the creative person, the creative director is thinking about creative, the uh, sales guys are thinking about sales, the CEO is thinking about, you know, the organization and logistics and so on, whatever. But as the, as the strategist, you represent the voice of the consumer, which is, you know, ultimately an objective truth because that's how they see your brand yes so for me it's that's that's the like core or like that's what i keep coming back to you know is this going to resonate with the consumer is are they going to enjoy it are they going to want to watch this you know 30 second or 60 second or 12 minutes you know video and i think aesthetic flair can elevate that but for me personally if it's not attached to a consumer truth or at least a respect yeah, yeah. for the end consumer then i think it's just completely superficial and you know that's kind of where our team has an interesting balance where you know i will always i think argue kind of more from a strategic perspective whereas i have an incredibly talented team of creatives who will elevate everything else through you know, their choice of aesthetics and visuals and the, the creative sensibilities that they apply to the project. But I think you need both. I don't think you can have aesthetic flair without having a kind of uh, a basis or a grounding in some sort of consumer truth. Uh, so a bit to summarize things up. Um, for those creators like you and me, for example, who make branded content, is there any sort of cultural mission? That's a great question. That's the best <laughs> question you've asked so I, far. I ask this question for, I ask this question like almost every week for myself. Yeah. I've been asking myself this throughout my <laughs> career and I often ask other, other people as well. Um, I think there is, there is, uh, how did you phrase it? Is it a mission? Well, is, uh, ask the question again in your words. When I say mission, I mean your own understanding of some kind of duty, maybe duty to yourself or duty to society that you imagine in inside your mind, and you have to and you have to follow it in order to fulfill your 
your, 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 maybe your moral needs to give something, to give something to the world, to the outside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, you know, personally, I've always, I think, considered myself, uh, I, I lean more towards, you know, a kind of socialist way of thinking. Oh. I don't consider myself in any way, uh, a typical sort of capitalist. And <laughs> the interesting thing is I think a lot of, a lot of other people in the advertising industry say or think similarly to me. And yet what we produce is kind of the epitome of, you know, like late hyper-capitalism. Wow. So we're, we're kind of <laughs> on paper, you know, like where we're in this sort of, uh, almost like contradiction or, uh, you know, sort of ironic circumstances. But what I, what I would say, and this is something I do believe is like, I'm also very pragmatic. And I think if you want to distribute a message or vocalize some sort of statement, you can speak to millions of people around the world through a piece of branded content. It's a very efficient vehicle. Absolutely. In a way that, you know, other forms of art and creativity, they they might be very powerful in their own way, but they don't necessarily they don't necessarily have the same power of distribution or the same scale, right? The same potential to scale. If if we create a video for Nike, for instance, just as an example, we know that it's going to be seen by millions and millions of people. Whereas if we make a documentary for Nowness that might be really emotionally powerful, it might have a very strong sort of subtle message, it's probably going to be seen by tens of thousands of people. So the scale is completely different. And that's where I think working with brands and working with, you know, this sort of essentially you know, this vehicle of messaging and communication and distribution, it, it can be, you know, it can be very powerful and effective. And I think how you choose to use that defines, you know, essentially how true you are to yourself and your, your perspective on society. And I know that we would never put something out into the world that we feel is damaging or will have like negative impact on people or society. But at the same time, you know, you have to, you also, I think, have to respect the fact that, you know, you're doing client work and you're doing work that ultimately is, you know, being paid for by corporations and businesses. And I think you do have to respect that. So I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't have a, I don't have an answer. I just have thoughts. I have open-ended thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Neither do I. Neither do I. So that's why I ask questions. You know, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, regardless of, your your value system or your thoughts on uh, society and politics you know brands will exist no matter what mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah you know we we could we could go back to i don't know some sort of feudalist society we probably still have brands because it's a way of it's a way of demarcating yourself as being you know part of a yeah, tribe yeah, yeah, yeah. or like having certain exactly uh thoughts or aesthetic sensibilities and that's kind of interesting right like I know that if I'm wearing Cavemt and I go up to someone else that's wearing Cavemt, we'll probably have like a, an interesting discussion about fashion and music and culture Absol in the same way that yeah, yeah, yeah. on the yeah, start yeah. of this call, you know, we, we read the same magazine, you know, 032C is a brand, right? Like it's something that immediately aligns ourselves as having some sort of uh, thing in common. Yeah. So I, I think it's really powerful. I think brands are really powerful, no matter no matter what you think about everything else around them. I think I think in a 
conceptual sort of abstract perspective, brands are incredibly uh, interesting and powerful. I think my last question for today, I really love the point that you mentioned about empathic connections that you've mentioned before, like you, you try to be sincere, trying to justify you, the client's choice of your particular team working on this particular project. It's pretty good that you mentioned that the sincerity that you share your content with. Could such balancing between you and casual reflect the struggle of an inner artist within commercial reality? Yeah. I know yeah. there's this more question, maybe that would refer more to someone who's directly involved in creative thinking, but I, w- I was interested in what you say, because actually, apart from being a strategy guy, I'm pretty sure that you have a vast amount of creative background on your own, which you, you, which you share alongside the push team. So maybe it's, it's not just about some kind of mission maybe it's it's also about something personal yeah yeah no completely i mean i i have i have this talk all the time and yeah i i consider myself you know very creative as well in so much as you know i will direct i will yeah. you know like get very hands-on with creative projects so i do sort of empathize and i have people on my team who are more sort of overtly creators or artists or whatever you want to call them and i always encourage them you know, you need to have your own creative output outside of work. You need to, you know, sort of uh, have that outlet away from the, you know, industrial sort of or the industry structures that we work within. Because ultimately, I don't think you're going to be satisfied a hundred percent when you're working under, you know, layers of restraints. Which is fine because that's a job. But I do think you need to completely separate your your sort of artistic output. And for myself personally at Push, the projects that I've been most proud of and that I've personally been most passionate about are the projects where we decide from the beginning that we're not going to make any money. We're not going to attempt to get any sort of margin or any sort of profit, but it's going to be a video that we're all proud of and we put everything into it creatively, or it's going to be, it could be an event, right? We did a an event with a friend of mine, Elijah, who's from the from the UK. He runs a record label called Butters, and we did a live talk in Tokyo, and it was all about inspiring kind of young creators. And we knew from the start that this wasn't, you know, PR. This wasn't an opportunity to make money. This is just something that you you do because it's good for the people around you. It's good for the world. It, you know, it puts something, even if it's really small, it puts something positive out there that wouldn't you know, come about as part of a, a kind of a for-profit or a commercial project. So for me personally, that's the easiest way to think about it. It's it's the projects that you do for money and it's the projects that you do for Donaldson. You, you do for, not for money. And I think it's not a perfect, you know, binary and it, it, it won't work a lot of the time, but it's a, it's a very simple way that I use to kind of demarcate the two. Uh, the last thing, to, the very last thing to ask, what is your latest inspiration? Another good question. Um, the latest inspiration. <laughs> so for me, for me personally, like I love football, right? Yeah. I watch football. I'm a big Arsenal fan. And the problem with football is that it's the most incredibly like financialized and capitalized sport around right now, right? Like there's so much money like from you know 
all sorts of places being filtered and players costing hundreds of millions. And it's, that's really bad, right? But what I love about football still is that it's something that's completely out of your control and yet allows you to create these incredibly charged connections with like hundreds and thousands of people. You know, if you're in a stadium, right, and you're cheering on a team, the experience and the feeling you have when a goal is scored is something that's completely unrecreatable anywhere else in life for me. And that's something that I never really appreciated when I was young, but I appreciate it more and more now. And I think there's this like magic in that moment, even amidst all of the the sort of problems in terms of the amounts of money and the politics and so on. Yeah. But yeah, in, that, yeah. in that specific moment when, you know, like 60,000 people in a stadium are up on their feet and cheering, like that is incredibly powerful. And I still think it's really powerful. And, you know, I miss it because I, I don't live in the UK anymore. Right. So I, I look back on those moments and I think that's, that's such a like incredible example of humanity in some ways that it, it's not easy to recreate also i mean the other the closest you could get to that would be a music festival right if you're you're with you know a hundred thousand people watching the food fighters at fuji rock which you know we were doing a few weeks ago it's amazing but those moments are so few and far between that i i find myself treasuring them more as i get older because i think it's really really hard to to create that spark or to recreate those moments, you know, where you're you're collectively so absorbed and so deeply kind of, well, I mean, the, there's the, there's a really sort of theoretical word, right? It was um, Durkheim calling it uh, is it collective effervescence or something like that. I think it really it really rings true. Where you know we're we're kind of aspiring to do that in advertising or in in creative, right? You want to have lots of people feeling something, feeling something very powerful. And then to actually witness that expression or to witness that moment in real life, I think is so special. So it's a really bad answer, but that's my answer. Uh, that's, that's, that's a perfect answer. Actually, no <laughs> one gives a perfect answer for that because all of the answers that we get are way more interesting than just, oh, I've seen a movie lately. It's been so inspirational for me. Well, we, we, we get extremely great answers for that, for that particular question. <laughs> Just as like all the others. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My, oh, my, just my pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much.